At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. My name's Stuart Wright, and today we're doing five great British horror films, continuing the series. And today I've got with me Dan Whitehead. Hello, Dan. Hello. I know it's that horrible pause. Anyway, you're going. He's just been talking to me for ten minutes, and now he's <laughs> and now he's saying hello like some lunatic. Behind but, the magic. <laughs> I always like to shine light on the let the wizard be out in the open. So <laughs> before we get into your five, do you want to tell people what hmm. it is you, you you get up to? Uh, I'm a writer, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I am. I'm not guessing. Um, yeah. I, I sort of write for magazines like uh, Big Issue North. Mm-hmm. Uh, do like um, film interviews for them, film reviews for them. I also uh, write scripts for video games. I write uh, comic books. I write film reference books. Um, I used to edit a film magazine. Um, just anything that involves writing about films. What was the, what was the film magazine you used to edit? Uh, it used to be called. It was called Movie Insider. Okay. It was very short-lived. <laughs> uh, it lasted about five issues, I think, five or six issues. Um, but it was a lot of fun, you know. Um, very hard to compete with the likes of Empire and Total Film on the the budget we had. But it was, uh, you know, it was nice to dip a toe in that. And what and what com- what comics have you got out in circulation that people might find? Uh, I have one called uh, Frankenstein Texas. Mm-hmm. Which a gothic western kind of what happens if you smash hammer horror into spaghetti westerns uh, based on the idea that at the same time sort of early 18th century where the time when Frankenstein is set is also the time of you know the kind of big push west in America so the concept behind that one is what if Frankenstein and his monster faked their deaths at the end of the novel and instead found their way to America and tried to start a new life there um, so that's out now. Um, and I also do a, a kid's kind of superhero comic, I guess, called Ella Upgraded. Okay. Uh, about a girl who gets a video games console put into her brain and she can get the powers from all the different games. And a sort of weird uh, coming-of-age supernatural thriller called Hexloader, mm-hmm. set in the 1980s computer games industry about a 
a reclusive coder who finds a way to use uh, computer code to cast magic spells and black magic. Like it, like it. So what, what reference books have you written? Um, I wrote um, a book called What's a Nice Actor Like You Doing in a Movie Like This? Right, and, and what's that about? Uh, it's about the kind of, um, when you're watching a movie and you suddenly go, oh my God, that's Matthew McConaughey. Mm. And it's like a 19-year-old Matthew McConaughey in some kind of terrible horror movie from, <laughs> from the 1990s or 1980s. Texas Chainsaw, wasn't it? He was, yeah, that's right. He was in one of the Texas Chainsaws. Him and, uh, um, what's she called? The Rennie, Bridge, like, Bridge, yeah, Rennie's Elway, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, there's, there's, there's loads of um, ones like that. I'm also sort of started noticing them, like Jennifer Anderson in Leprechaun, um, all those kind of ones, but also really obscure ones that you just would never, never have spotted, like people in the background of shots and things like that. Go on, what was what was your uh, what kind of on a kind of got famous level to obscure noticing? Oh, yeah. What was your what was your favourite spot? I think the one that's probably most relevant these days is uh, Mark Ruffalo. Yeah, is in um, Brian Usner's The Dentist. Is he? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I never, I never saw him anyway. Yeah, he's he's like he's like escorting his wife or something out of the dentist's office, and he's literally on screen for about three seconds. Genius, genius! I'm yeah. liking that. I'm liking that. Good idea for a book. So that's the kind of thing, yeah. And I, I've spent about five years just going down this rabbit hole of obsessively searching IMDb and scouring old VHS tapes trying to find people who would go on to be famous. Well, look, you did it, so we don't have to, and then we can read about it. I'm, I'm all for this. <laughs> is that there's a lot of there's a lot of books there's a lot of books about I mean I remember reading um, Jack Sargent's book Death Tripping about, mm-hmm. about a lot of sort of New York no wavy cinema which I've seen a couple of them but I don't know watch them all but but reading about them is still interesting exactly yeah and um, and and I was I kind of was talking to you about it but is this I think it's the idea that um, I think Kurt Cobain said it once in an interview where it's like he couldn't get access to punk rock all he had access to him was metal. So you mm. would be listening to heavy metal while reading about punk and imagining what punk was through the gauze of metal and obviously <laughs> imagining something else. So yeah. you kind of, when you read about films you can't watch or you haven't seen and then you're imagining them yourself <clears throat> because of what the author's telling you, there's yeah. a kind of other film that's been invented, I feel. Definitely, yeah. I mean, I used to get that looking through, like, um, before I was old enough to be allowed to watch horror movies, I would have books about horror movies. Oh. And you would sort of flick through and you'd have, like, one gory image from a film and that was your only reference for the whole film I mean I remember there's certainly stuff from like John Carpenter's The Thing, some of the pictures of the special effects in that, the bendy heads and the spider monster and things like that and just thinking what is this movie Yeah I do, I mean I, I, I kind of do and I don't envy the kind of internet generation who can just you know Google anything they want, they can mm. pirate the film within two minutes of hearing the title whereas this idea of a striking image from a film and you're like one day I might see that. Yeah. Or, or maybe I'm too scared based on that image to ever want to see it. <clears throat> yeah. Well, look, sir, let's get into your five great British uh, horror films. Now, just to let people who may not have heard the series before, the rules are quite simple. They're five films that you like. They're British. They're horror films. They're not, they're not an attempt to define what is the best British horror film. That's for the BFI to do and people like that. Mm-hmm. What this is is to shine light on... on interesting films and, and why they're interesting to you. I mean, I think, like I said to you in um, in some of the messages, that I've had people come on and give me public information films <laughs> with uh, Donald Pleasance doing the voiceover, yes. you know, and I've had Aphex Twin videos as much as I've had um, 
I don't know, Don't Look Now or Blood and Satan's Claw, which are kind of two of the dead obvious ones that people might pick as classic British horror films. So it's all about, for me, it's trying to speak to people who are interested in this stuff, which clearly, clearly you are, and, uh, and getting an interesting tale, either be, be about why you like it or why it's interesting to you, and, and maybe a bit about a kind of personal biography, you know, your, your connection to it. So I see mm-hmm. there are five great choices. You, you straddle the 50s to the present day, which mm-hmm. is always a good thing. So we're going to get a good spread. So let's start off, and I should add for the listener who hasn't done it before, when we get five minutes, so it's five films, five minutes of film, and when Edgar Broughton sings Out Demons Out, we move on to the next one. I'm not Magnus Magnusson, by the way, Dan. I'm not going to, I'm not going to hold you to that. If you want, I will, I will be polite-ish. Yeah. But um, it's just so we know we're not going to spend 15 minutes on one film and two minutes on another. That suits me. Fine. Are you in? I am. Let's go. Right, 1955, Three Cases of Murder. Do you want to tell us a bit about it and why why you would alert people to that film? Yeah, I mean, this is one of those movies um, when you're kind of just browsing, so maybe late at night on TV or those um, channels like Talking Pictures that just show old movies back to back. Um, and I saw this one was I can't even remember what when it was on, but it was a few years ago. And it's it's not a particularly inspiring title. But there was something about it that caught my eye, and I thought, I'll give that a go. And it's one of those movies where you start watching it, and you go, actually, this is really good. Why haven't I heard about this before? So um, it opens. It's, it's a kind of anthology movie, mm. uh, but like years before Amicus and people like that were doing them. Um, and it's three stories, as the title cunningly suggests. Mm. Uh, but it opens with Eamon Andrews, the, uh, the host of This Is Your Life, uh, <laughs> Walking up to the camera and shooting a gun at the audience. <laughs> really? Uh, yeah. It starts with Eamon Andrews shooting at you. Uh, and then he, he says something like, um, that's how I like my murders. Nice and quick. Or something. And then he proceeds to sit down in a nice big armchair and uh, kind of tell you these three tales of murder. Um, there's three of them. Uh, the first one is great. The last one is great. The middle one is rubbish, so we're not going to talk about that one. Um, <laughs> The middle one's not even remotely horror or supernatural. It's just a boring story about two men who think each other's killed their girlfriend. Um, so the first story uh, is called In the Picture. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, uh, it's directed by Wendy Toy, who was a, a dancer. In, that was her background in film. She was a choreographer. But she directs this, um, this, uh, this story about a guy who works in a museum a gallery and things are going missing. And he finds out, he gets drawn into the pa- one of these paintings, this painting of a kind of ominous old house on the hill. Yeah. He gets drawn into the painting where he finds uh, Mr. X, who lives in the painting in this house with his, his girlfriend and a, a weird um, taxidermist. <laughs> and basically the idea is this guy is stealing things from the gallery at night to populate his empty painting home and... The, the idea behind it is that every single work of art has people trapped inside it. It's basically limbo. Wow. Um, and this guy who works in the gallery is kind of sucked in, and obviously Mr. X has terrible things in mind for him. Um, but it's just that it, it does such a great job of selling this idea of this painting and this life inside the painting and it makes a virtue of its cheapness because you've kind of got this 
interior set of this house that mm. is, you know, it's pretty basic. But that works because it feels sparse and unfinished and not meant to be seen because in the painting all you see is the outside of the house and this is what it's like inside. It's just just emptiness. Um, and it's just a really interesting idea um, and it's done very, very cleverly. It's quite, it's not, it's one of those ones you could argue it's not really a horror story, but mm. it's, def- it's definitely supernatural. I guess it's, it's uncanny, I guess. is what That's horror enough for me. Yeah, it's, it's weird and unsettling, and after it's finished, you're kind of like, ooh, that, that, that was more affecting than I thought it would be. I'm guessing as well, with the female director, that was sort of breaking the rules a bit for who, who got to do what in film. Yeah, I mean, I guess because it was an anthology movie and, you know, it, it didn't have that kind of author <coughs> thing going on. Hmm. It was easier for them to let that happen, I guess, because it was, I guess it's, it's only really a short film, technically. Um, but yeah, no, it's really interesting, and I think it's, it's especially interesting that she's a dancer, and this it has this kind of elegance to it, sort of chilly elegance. Now, there's a weird, I mean, there's an uncredited, on, on IMDb, there's an uncredited director thing to Orson Welles, isn't there? There is. We're coming, <laughs> we're coming to that now. Go on, go on, please, tell um, me. The, the, um, the final story in the, in the trilogy um, is uh, an adaptation of um, W. Somerset Maugham's uh, Lord Mount Drago short story. Yeah. Uh, and Orson Welles is in that play in Lord Mount Drago. Mm. Um, and if you're not familiar with the story, it's um, it's kind of a social satire crossed with sort of very early psychology, uh, psychoanalysis kind of thing. Mm. He plays this pompous Tory MP who is plagued by dreams in which this um, sort of uh, plucky uh, Labour MP from Wales keeps appearing in his dreams. And humiliating him in his dreams. Really? <laughs> um, and he goes to see this uh, psychiatrist about it, mm. uh, trying to work out what's going on. And he, he, through their um, sort of sessions, he works out that he humiliated this MP in a debate um, because he just, you know, he just spoke, you're, you're rubbish, you're. Yeah. Dan! Your first, your first five minutes are up. Um, I'm really proud of this. <laughs> the way it goes. Yeah, well, it, it, basically the story, is, it's uh, it's kind of like a political version of Nightmare on Elm Street, and it features Orson Welles uh, singing uh, Give Me Your Answer Do with his pants around his ankles. Well, I think that's so, a good way to end it. End, end now, now you have to see it. Yes, indeed. I think everyone <laughs> listening is rushing to find it. Yeah. So, uh, swiftly moving on, and the one, one I've never heard of uh, until, until, we, until you sent me a list through, and mm. so I'm excited to hear about... Uh, David Green's film, I Start Counting, from 1970. Uh, Yeah, so this is, I guess the best way to describe this would be it's part of that 1970s wave of what I guess you could call sort of English giallo movies. Okay. Uh, Stuff like Assault, uh, Killer's Moon. There was this kind of wave of kind of sexual slasher-type movies in England, but whereas in Italy they would have been like lurid, colourful sort of, you know, flamboyant things in England in the 1970s. <clears throat> They're just these kind of, like, grotty, seedy... Austin <laughs> Allegro's. Yeah, it's kind of like rain <laughs> on cracked concrete, kind of just depressing landscapes. Were, were, uh, they, were they aping the Italians, or was this... Would you think this is a kind of spawning off from, like, the kind of 
that, that whole kind of a CD Soho sort of cinema that happened in the 60s, because this is 1970, isn't it? So, yeah, I mean, I think it's a bit of both, really. I don't, yeah. think it's, I don't think it was ever as intentional as, hey, let's do giallo movies in England. But yeah. when you kind of see them side by side, you see the themes are very similar. That kind of, like, heightened, lots of strangling, um, you know, that kind of seedy, misogynist kind of undercurrent. But what's interesting about I Start Counting is that it's not that. Uh, it's it's quite female gaze in the way it approaches it. Really? So, yeah, I, mean, I should probably tell you what it's about, really. Um, yeah, go on. So it stars uh, Jenny Agatha, mm-hmm. uh, six, 16 at the time, uh, playing a 14-year-old. Um, and she plays this girl called Wynne, who's adopted. She's obsessed with her older foster brother, who's like 30-odd. Uh, but she also thinks he's uh, the sex killer who's terrorising the area. Wow. So it's almost like a whodunit as she tries to work out, is he this killer, while also fantasising about him. And the film frames him in the way it would frame the sexy schoolgirl in a more sleazy take on this story. Um, there's a lot of subtext going on. Uh, lots of sort What, of... her gaze on him as a young yeah, girl seeing a yeah. grown man? She sort of spies on him while he's getting changed and things like that. Okay. Um, and it... it for a film that is directed by a guy and was made when it was, it, it, to my mind, I mean, I've never been a teenage girl, so I can't be entirely sure, but yeah. it feels very sympathetic to her point of view and the kind of... The, her experience, she's not in it as, a, as an object. She is very much the protagonist, and um, it, it digs deep into her emotions... Um, and her hopes and her fears, and she feels like a, a real person, a real kid, you know, it, it rings true. Uh, it's not, um, you know, ooh, a sexy school day, this kind of stuff. Um, it's, yeah, which it, I think pornography was well playing away <coughs> around me by this yeah, point, and, wasn't and, it? and films like Assault, which I think was made of the year after this, that's about a kind of guy raping and strangling at a girls' school, and that is very much in that vein. It's lots of point of view chasing school girls through the forest kind of stuff, and it's quite unpleasant. This is the complete opposite. Um, and like I say, there's a lot of it's, it's kind of to do with that kind of end of the 60s when lots of houses were being bulldozed and families being moved into tower blocks, uh, sort of sense of sort of class dislocation, and how that's kind of experienced through Wynne, who's a Catholic schoolgirl as well. So she's got this kind of Catholic guilt thing going on. Um, the, the only downside with it is that the the ending, the kind of the twist at the end, is not particularly compelling. Um, it doesn't really feel like they had an interesting way to end this story. Mm. Uh, the, re- the reveal of who the killer is is not so much a surprise as a, oh, okay. Really? Uh, yeah, that's, that's the only downside. But there's so much going on before that that's interesting. That it's, it's one of those films I saw and I thought, that is way more interesting than it should have been. Is the, is the, is the Basil Kirchin score present in the film, or is it just is it understated? Um, I couldn't tell you, I'm afraid. It's, 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 a fasc- it's a fascinating, I mean, obviously, a Northwest guy. Mm. Um, and, and there's a link to one of your other film, to your to your next film, I think. Mm, yes, yeah, Dr. Fives, yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's quite, it's, I mean, it's a, there's a there's a name there that's sort of all over this kind of period, I think, in a sense. Yeah, yeah, and the weird thing is David Green, who directed this, he, uh, before this he did um, The Shuttered Room, which was a Lovecraft adaptation. And then after I Start Counting, he went on to direct uh, Godspell, the musical. Um, I haven't seen that. And Roots. 
Yeah, sorry, I saw Roots. That was a kind yeah. of that seemed like a bit of a stretch away from it. Yeah, so he's one of those kind of English directors who just had those kind of weird careers that just went all over the place. And know. then 80s TV, it looked like. Yeah, I mean, most of them ended up in 80s TV. <laughs> <laughs> well, there we go. We timed that one better. That was better, yeah. <clears throat> right, then. Well, we've already given... We've, we've shone a bit of light on what's next. We've got the Abominable Dr. Fibes with the score by Basil Kirchin mm-hmm. from 1971. Yes. A great year, in my mind. <laughs> Now, uh, this is not only one of my favourite horror films, it is one of my favourite films, full stop. Um, I just think it's a masterpiece. So um, it's your favourite film. Where, where, how did you come across it to even find it first time round? Do you remember? Um, yeah, I mean, this is, this is one of the ones where I really remember when I saw it, because I must have been about 10 or 11, maybe. Um, yeah. so, sometimes my stepdad would let me stay up and watch a film on telly downstairs. Hmm. This was back in the days when you didn't have a telly in your room. Uh, and, you know, through doing this, you know, I got to see, like, Jaws and Blade Runner and Bullet and things like that. <clears throat> and one night, it was the Abominable Dr. Fives. And I was just mesmerised by it. Because I, I, I was aware of horror films, obviously. Um, mm. I, I think I've probably seen a couple. I've seen, like, Alien, some of the tapes off the telly a year before, and I kind of half-watched it. Um, but this was the first time I'd seen, like, a horror film beginning to end. And... It's weird because this is not a typical horror film. It's it's a comedy and it's a comic book and it's almost a musical in some ways. Um, but I was just like, what is this? This is, I don't know whether I should be laughing or be grossed out or frightened. Um, so it's, um, if, for anyone who somehow hasn't heard of Dr. Vibes, it's Vincent Price in that period where he was making horror films in England. Mm. Um he plays Dr. Anton Fibes, um, who is a, a renowned organist. Uh, he's in a car crash in Switzerland with his wife. People think he's died. Uh, they try to save his wife on the operating table, but she dies. But he has actually uh, survived the crash. Uh, his face has been melted off. Uh, he goes mad, obviously. Um, <laughs> and he, he, he comes back years later, um, kind of covering his face with rubber masks, uh, speaking through a voice box. And he wants to kill um, all the people who failed to save his wife on the operating table. He's after the surgical team that's tried, but failed to kill his wife. Uh, as he's puts it, nine killed her, nine shall die, nine eternities in doom. Um, and it, for each one, he, he themes all the killings around um, the plagues of Egypt. <clears throat> and I think, I think, this is the first film that had that kind of serial killer with a theme. Going do you think? Do you, I mean, I never thought about it till we were till I was getting ready to talk to you about it. But do you, do you think somewhere in Lee Wanell's Lee Wanell writer of Saw fame? Mm. Do you think this was in his? Do you think this was a subconscious or conscious influence? The ending to Doctor Fives is very, very much a Saw kind of thing. Um, the, the ending. Uh, yeah. Um, is the surgeon is the last one left alive, mm. uh, and he has to remove surgically remove a key from his own son's chest in order to wheel his son away from acid that's going to pour on him. Uh, and that uh, feels like a, a jigsaw. Yeah, that that uh, that's I'd forgotten that to be honest with you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, but also, I think um, Seven, the David Fincher movie, I think that is basically a remake of Doctor Fibes. 
Uh, they use the seven deadly sins instead of the nine plagues of Egypt. Yeah. But it's same biblically themed murders. And at the end, the final killing, if you like, the final mm. thematic death is the killer himself. In Dr. Fives, it's darkness, and Dr. Fives basically goes into hibernation. Um, and in Seven, obviously, it's... Um, what, what is it for you about, about Vincent Price? What does he, what does he bring? That, <coughs> that sort of... I think as a kid, what, what amazed me about him was he was having so much fun. Oh. Even in something like Dr. Fives, where you don't really see his face that mm. much, um, there was a kind of pantomime playfulness to him. I think it's more obvious in Theatre of Blood, which mm. after the Fives movies, where it's the same basic conceit, except it's Shakespeare plays that are themed around the, the killings. But um, That afro will never be bettered, will it? <laughs> it's amazing. Uh, I mean, I think Theatre of Blood has the better Vincent Price performance. Mm. But I think Fives is just such a weird movie. I mean, it opens with a clockwork orchestra, the killings themselves. There's some hilarious... There's, the great thing of um, sort of 1970s British horror films where you'd always have two comedy inept cops trying to catch the killer, and they were there as comic relief, basically. And there's a great one where a guy gets um, impaled on a model unicorn through a wall, and they have to unscrew him off the wall, and there's an entire scene with the detectives talking, and all you can see is this guy's legs. as a guy <laughs> go up past, <laughs> out of the side of the wall. Damn, to... we've reached the end of five minutes again. <clears throat> well, it's, it's nice, nice that we've got to include your favourite film. Now, now next on the agenda is, is one that's been on a couple of, sh- a couple of uh, shows already, but I've I been... Thought... Well, I mean, it's, it's like, like Blood and <coughs> Satan's Claw and Don't Look Now. It's, um, hmm. it's the, they're, the, they're the three, with Wicker Man, they're the three, and then, yeah. you, go, then you go Witchfinder General, I think. Mm. And then, then it's any... I, I, I never know whether it's... Um, because some people don't like you saying American Wolf in London's a British film. Yeah, I can see that, yeah. I've had it on, I've had people include it, I don't mind. Uh, yeah. Hellraiser, mm. um, which I like to include as the five. But I know the five is always, I guess, the, the fifth one of the five is always the, 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 the moving, the moving shifting sand, as it were. But let's, let's, let's focus on The Wicker Man and, <coughs> yeah. and why, and, and, and to let the audience know. I'm, I'm going to assume with this one, because we've had it a few times. And it's probably the more well known of the films you've selected. Yeah. Why this film is your your equivalent of what Exorcist is to Catholics? Okay, so I mean, I love The Exorcist, but it doesn't scare me because I was never raised believing in hell or the devil or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so while I can appreciate The Exorcist as a great horror movie, I yeah. don't have that visceral reaction to it that people who are raised Catholic do, which is basically saying all that stuff you were told, it's true. <laughs> um, for me, my parents were kind of that sort of baby boomer generation, uh, sort of came of age in the 60s, got into folk music. Um, so a lot of my childhood, very early childhood, was kind of following them around to things that had like Morris dancing, um, folk music, all this kind of, not pagan, but... Incredible that, string band type thing. <clears throat> I guess, yeah, that sort of, um, sort of overlap between the sort of hippie stuff and folk music. Hmm. Um, but so much of the stuff in The Wicker Man is real. I don't necessarily mean the supernatural aspect, but the, the, it's a very well-researched movie. Um, okay. Stuff like The, uh, the Hand of Glory, um, when um, Britt Eklund's doing her saucy dance, and mm. she puts with the, um, the burning uh, 
candle made from the guy's hand. Hmm. That, that's a real thing in folklore, the, the hand of glory. You make a, a candle out of a hanged man's hand. Uh, and it's, I mean, in folklore, it's supposed to open any locked door and put people to sleep, but in this one, it makes Edward Woodward very horny. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, it's the same thing. Um, the sword dancing at the end where they put the swords in like a, a cross formation and people have to put their heads through it. Yeah. Um, that, I saw that happening at um, these sort of folk music, Morris dancing things. That's a real thing. Um, corn dollies, those kind of intricate woven sheaths of corn, the maypoles, the hobby horses, the animal masks, all that stuff was stuff that had been all around me as a kid. And um, there used to be a, a thing called Old Ball, which in the very old days would have been an actual horse's skull on a stick. Right. But thankfully, by the 1970s, um, when my parents were doing it, it was like a sort of papier-mâché thing. But they used to keep it in our house, this terrifying sort of model of a horse's head. And it scared the crap out of me. It'd be down at the bottom of the stairs, and I'd be scared to come down. So when you see stuff like that in The Wicker Man, to me, I was like, well, this, this, no, I know this stuff. So when you get to that ending, which is amazing and scary and horrifying, no matter what you do, mm. to me, as a, you know, I'm trying to think how old I was when I first saw The Wicker Man. I was probably teens, maybe early to mid-teens. But it kind of brought all this stuff back. You know, a lot of it I'd forgotten or repressed, maybe. Um, and I, sh- I should point out at this point, my parents never burned anybody alive. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I feel I should be I'll clear. S- I'll that. stop down in 999 now, then. Yeah, yeah but, I mean, but apart from that, literally everything else in the film, to me, rang absolutely true, because I'd seen all of it before. Um, and I just, I just love how well-researched and how seriously the film takes that stuff um, and the sort of symbolism of it and the ritual of it. Um, Did you watch it with your peers? Like, who, who, with kids you'd had some experience or was your parents quite unique? No, 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 I mean, yeah, no, no, the only other person who went through this was my sister. Right. <laughs> that's, our, that's our sort of shared trauma. Um, but, uh, yeah, so no, nobody else had Morris dancing parents. So it was, it was that's, really, that's, that's a really unique way of, of a re- unique prism to watch the film through, because obviously it's got, it's still got a kind of God won't save you moment, as opposed yeah, yeah. to, um, <clears throat> and all that. So about how, if you, it's the opposite of The Exorcist. It's like, no matter what you believe, people who set fires to you are going to be more powerful than any God you imagine, because you'll yeah. die. Also, I mean, one of the things I love about the film um, is the end that Edward Woodward sort of, as he's being set fire to, sort of says, you know, if the crops fail next year, it's got to be you in here to <laughs> support Christopher Lee. And you sort of see Christopher Lee give it, oh, shit, kind of face. So even there, there's this kind of suggestion that well, maybe he's screwed as well, you know, maybe, maybe they're all all doomed. Um, so it's a very bleak film, but I was watching it at that kind of age where you're just consuming every horror film you can find, and I'd heard of The Wicker Man loads and loads and loads. I didn't know what it was about, but I'd heard, you know, oh, The Wicker Man, that's one of the best ones. Mm. So I kind of watched it, and as I was watching it, I was going, oh my god, no, this, no, this, this, this stuff, that's not, they've not made that up. This is, you know, this, this could be true, this could be a documentary. <laughs> Amazing. That is amazing. Of all the, of all the kind of stories I imagine that I might hear <coughs> about Wicker Man, I wasn't thinking of, of semi-trauma kids with big mache horses heads at the bottom of the stairs. <laughs> right, so we're going to fast forward to almost yeah. the present day. So 
Um, I know that on IMDb it, it says 2016, I think, but I think now officially it's 2017 is oh. uh, Liam Gavin's A Dark Song. Yeah. Which, which uh, before I start the clock on you, um, is, uh, is interesting because for two reasons, as I said, I'll, just for the listeners, I, I said to you in a message is that one this week, it, it kind of got a lot of love on Twitter, thanks to Scott Derrickson, who uh, directed Sinister and um, Doctor Strangelove, um, saying how ever since he watched it, he's thought about it a lot over the last year or so. Mm. And um, a week before that, I'd, I'd interviewed Liam Gavin for the podcast about a making of a dark song. Because mm. I've been I've been dying to get him on, and I wanted to to sort because it's 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 a really and you you can talk about why you like it, but in in a moment. But that, yeah, it's a song that I, I I'm glad to to draw attention to because sadly it was just a terrible release for whatever reason. You know, obviously it's not a very mainstream film, but actually I think it's a film that's going to have a lot of legs and and be around for a while, hopefully. Yeah. So, so, I mean, this, I, I felt I should have a film from the 21st century. Mm-hmm. On the, and um, like Scott Derrickson said, this is one of those movies I saw it, um, you know, well over a year ago. And it gets its claws into you. Um, so A Dark Song is a film about magic. Um, Catherine Walker uh, stars as a woman called Sophia. And it's very economically told. All we know is that she's... She's hired this guy, Solomon, who's played by the always brilliant Steve Oram. Um, and he's an occultist, but he's a kind of shambolic, realistic version of an occultist. You know, he, he looks like the guy you'd avoid sitting next to on the bus. He's not, he's not Doctor Strange, basically, which is... Yeah, but he's not, he's not Crowley, is he? <laughs> no, no, no. Um, <laughs> he's like a bloke in an anorak who... But it turns out he does know about the occult. And the idea is she wants to do this ritual to summon an angel to make a request. Uh, an angel or a demon, can't remember. But um, basically, she wants to summon something to make this request. Um, and this is why I find it's interesting that um, Scott Derrickson's a fan of it, because this is a film about magic, which is at the complete opposite end of the scale to Doctor Strange and that kind of Harry Potter-esque where you just kind of go, Wingardium Leviosa, and that's a spell. Mm. If this film, casting a spell takes months. Um, they have to they hire this house in the middle of Wales, in the middle of nowhere. They put a circle of salt all around the house. They can't leave for however long it takes. Every day she has to follow these exacting, demanding rituals. It's physically punishing. It's mentally draining. It's emotionally abusive. It's claustrophobic. It's horrible. Um, but it's this ongoing process that they have to keep doing this and keep doing this. And it makes, it, it makes magic into hard work. It's it's not something you would do on a whim. It's a commitment. It you know it takes everything out of you. Yeah, it makes it feel like magic is a creative process, not uh, you know the yeah. same way you might write a new piece of fiction. You know, you've got to let something breathe, and you've got to come back to it and do something else and tweak it here, and it really yeah. puts you. Through, you feel like you go through the paces of it, don't you? Yeah, it's it's a grueling film. I mean, it's it's not fun, but it's. Um, it's, it's one of those stories where they could have kind of walked the line of going, you're like, oh, is it real? Is it not? Is it all in their head? But then the moment I really fell in love with it is sort of towards the end, and I'm not going to spoil it because this is a film I really want people to mm. see as clean as they can. Um, there's, some, there's a shot at the, near the end where it just goes full on. Here's a thing. <laughs> mm. 
And it's such an amazing visual. If you've seen the film, you probably know what I'm talking about. I do, yeah. It's, un- it's unapologetic in what it might have promised and what yeah. it delivers, isn't it? Yeah, and all of a sudden you go, oh, wow, okay, we're going there, are we? Okay. Um, and I, I just loved it. And it's, this film has always made me think about um, the stuff Alan Moore says about magic when he created the character of John Constantine, Hellblazer. Yeah. Uh, which you mentioned before, hmm. he said he wanted to create an occultist who was like the occultists he knew in real life, not like Doctor Strange, who were all kind of, you know, by the hoary hosts of Hogarth or whatever. Hmm. Um, so, and to me, A Dark Song is basically the unofficial Hellblazer movie. That's an interesting way to... Because, yeah, you're right, in a way, Steve Oram's character... I mean, if you'd have seen John Constantine eating egg and chips in a cafe... Yeah, you'd have bought you'd you'd have bought that in a comic, wouldn't you? <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and I mean, to me, um, Tim Roth has always been Constantine. That's always been my preferred casting for the film version. If you put, not that you should replace Steve Orman in this because he's amazing, but if you put sort of Tim Roth in a dirty trench coat with a shirt and a red tie, this will be a John Constantine story. It will be a Hellblazer story. Um, and I just I just love that it it takes an idea that has always been kind of abused and misused in film, this idea of, of magic as a mean, you know, we're always interested in the end result of magic, and this is very interested in the process of it. Um, and again, it, it rings true. You kind of feel like, yeah, this if you did do this kind of stuff, this is what it would take. You wouldn't just be able to sort of sit down at the kitchen table one night and go, I'm going to cast a spell, light a black candle, and off you go. It would take, you know, six months of your life and you would be a shell at the end of it. Um, yeah, because it's, it, has that, <coughs> it has that weird weird thing where I, I wouldn't even know who the protagonist is of this film, you know, in mm. some senses, because it's, it's a two-hander and it's a pure two-hander. Yeah, yeah. The emphasis of the film moves with each sort of... I guess how, how it goes between... I'm oh, sorry. I'll finish that thought. The way that, the way that um, if you're not normal contained horrors and thrillers tend to have a, at least three people to play off. Mm. So you have, you have a clear hero and then two other people to fuck it around. Whereas yeah. this is two people fucking each other up, really, I think. Yeah. Is what yeah, makes yeah. it magic, is that you kind of, you don't want anyone to get in trouble to a degree. And you don't actually, um, and everyone, every, nobody's got really innocent demands or desires. No, no, they've, they've, they've both got an agenda, and, but at the same time, you, you kind of grow to like them mm. in a weird kind of way. Um, and if, um, I can, if I can, while we're talking about it, because I've, I've done the I've done the podcast with Liam Gavin about making this film, so for anyone that has seen it and wants to get a kind of... Um, <coughs> to get a sort of insight into it, then um, keep your eyes open for it, or if you listen to this months, in adv- months after November 2018, then go look for it, because it'll be about... <laughs> uh, no, it was really good uh, talking to him about it. Um, but um, but think it, now, now we've got to end of your five films. So we've got three cases of murder. We got mm-hmm. I start counting. We got the Bomb Doctor Five, the Wicker Man, and a Dark Song. Now, having talked through them like that, would do you, what? What do you do? You think there's an overriding theme that you've that you've kind of identified with the five you've got? Is there, nothing springs to mind for me, so I'm not. No. I'm not going to project on you. No, probably not. I mean, I guess the Wicker Man and the Dark Song are kind of thematic cousins. Mm. Um, Abominable Doctor Fives is kind of a a bizarre kind of Fantomas style comic book horror comedy mm. musical. Um, no, I don't think there is one. I think uh, I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing. 
no, no, it's, 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 it's interesting because it's because I think sometimes with I think it's a good thing. It's sort of it gives, gives you kind of almost like a schizophrenic view of, of the kind of films mm. you like. Or certainly I mean, my I... my view of you now seeing these is like that's not like you don't like a one type sort of thing. Sometimes it's really yeah. there is a there's a theme running through the films that people pick. Um, I, I could definitely have picked like five films that were all kind of similar, but I kind of didn't want to do that. I wanted mm. to pick five ones that would be, you know, each one would have something unique to say about it, really. And these are all five films where I've either grown up loving them or kind of discovered them much later and fallen in love with them. No, totally, totally. And I just want to, for, for, the, uh, for the listener that's going insane at the moment, because I keep calling Doctor Strange Doctor Strange, though, apologies. <laughs> it dawned on me, I think, the third time I did it, and I thought, I'm not, I can't do anything now, I've done it. It, uh, and I'd listen to you and thought, no, it's such a strange you idiot. I was, I, was, I was biting my tongue. But, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you for your politeness. Um, <laughs> so just before you go then, do you want to give us a quick, a quick replug then of um, what comics that you've, that, you've, that you've written that are out in circulation right now? Uh, I, guess, I guess the one that um, listeners to this podcast will be most interested in are uh, Hexloader and Frankenstein Texas. And if you search for them on the, on the Googles or on Facebook, there are... We'll, we'll, we'll put a link in the show notes so people can Oops. get to it direct. And what was the name of the book again that you've written? Oh, um, uh, what's a nice actor like you doing in a movie like this? Brilliant. We'll get a link into that as well. And it only for me to say thank you very much for your time, Dan. Thank you for having me. The Britflix podcast is provided absolutely free. If you want to help me get the podcast out to more people, please take a moment to leave a review on iTunes. Or if you want to help me out directly, there's a link in the show notes to my Patreon page. All contributions are welcome. And the music is by Chris Reed of thecomposers.tv. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey, y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Discover South Carolina.